0: Welcome to Do We Know Things, a podcast where we examine things we think we know about sex. Content warning This podcast will include discussions about sex and sexual violence and some ranting about the patriarchy. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Lisa Don Hamilton, professor of psychology and sex educator. Today on Do We Know Things, who wants sex more, men or women? It's a widely endorsed stereotype you'll find everywhere, from great literature to teen romantic comedies. We see men of all sexual orientations being complete less monsters that can't control themselves, while women are vanguards of purity, blocking men's advances or tragically succumbing to the lesbian bed death. But like everything rooted in gender stereotypes, the reality is much more complicated than horny dudes and prudish women. This time on Do We Know Things, we'll dive into research on gender and lust, check our cultural biases, and see what we can learn from the animal kingdom. But first! On the last episode, I talked about the relationship between testosterone and sexual desire. In that episode, I referred to a book by Patrick Khalifa in which he talks about the effects of taking testosterone. In the episode, I said the book was Sex Changes, but it's actually a different book. So it's Patrick Khalifa's book, Speaking Sex to Power. That has been updated on the last episode, so if you download it now, it will be correct, but I just wanted to mention that for people who listened to it earlier. I also had a listener question from the last episode that I wanted to discuss on today's episode. Fortunately for me, the question asker is able to be here in the studio to talk to us on today's podcast. Elizabeth Streger is here today, and she is a librarian and someone who has polycystic ovarian syndrome uh, that we will a- abbreviate as PCOS, or P-C-O-S. Welcome, Elizabeth.
1: Hi, Lisa Don. So, I was excited about the topic of your last podcast episode, and it raised a question for me, which was, do people with polycystic ovary syndrome, which causes higher testosterone levels, also experience increased sexual desire?
0: This was a question I hadn't actually thought about before, so I, I dug into the research around this after Elizabeth presented me with the question, and essentially the research is a little bit all over the place. Um, some of the studies seem to say there's no difference in sexual desire or sexual function between people with PCOS and people without it, Um But a lot of the research, again, it's focused in the medical field. Um, Often in the medical field, we focus on the negative. Uh, It talks about how all the problems with sexual function that people with PCOS have. Um, However, um, Elizabeth was able to dig up a study with her librarian wisdom. Um, And when we dug into the study, it actually showed that for for people with um, particularly high testosterone who have PCOS, um, there does seem to be a link between testosterone and, sexu- and heightened sexual desire. Uh, the thing with PCOS is that it causes ovarian dysregulation of many sorts, and so all sorts of hormonal things happen. Um, in some cases, it is elevated testosterone, and in other cases, it's um, other things. So there are all sorts of effects that occur for people who have PCOS, um, and perhaps, Elizabeth, you can talk a little bit about your experience as a person with PCOS.
1: Yes. So uh, the main things that doctors have talked to me about um, in terms of diagnosing PCOS and then treatment plans have been concerns about weight and body hair and infertility. So, yes, I'm overweight. I carry a fair amount of weight in my belly. Um, I have um, increased body hair, including facial hair. I'm probably infertile, but that's fine with me because children weren't part of my life plan. Um, So usually the things that have been uh, raised have been concerns raised by the doctors, not raised by me as a queer woman who's not particularly concerned about any of these things. Um, so I was just curious about the, the impact on sexual function, because it had never occurred to me to think about that, because that's not a concern that had been raised by doctors, including gynecologists.
0: Yes, and that goes along with the theme for a lot of the things when we talk about sexuality related to any sort of medical condition and dealing with people in the medical field, is that doctors either don't want to talk about it, don't feel comfortable talking about it, or just don't even consider talking about it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I I I'm happy with my level of sexual desire and function. Um, so, I, I my my interest was actually mostly academic, and then also, if there is a difference, why aren't we talking about it?
0: <laughs> exactly, and it it's another important point of including people with uh, various disorders in. In those discussions to inform medical professionals of things they should be talking about, because if you don't have lived experience with something, just reading about it in a paper or hearing other professionals who also don't have this condition talk about it in a, in a conference doesn't give you a lot of information.
1: Hmm. I mean, actually, I think the, the the biggest effect in terms of like sexual function is that sometimes I have like really long, heavy periods um, because I'm I'm not on the pill, which is one of the suggestions for how to treat people with Pcos. Um, and so, I mean, that has effects on how often I'm having sex because I have um, really heavy periods with a lot of blood clots, which again is something that people don't generally talk about. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs)
0: And it's also important, I would say, for medical professionals to talk to people in a way that meets their needs for what their, whether it's sexual needs or medical needs, instead of assuming that you want to deal with specific symptoms to fit into specific boxes.
1: Exactly. I was in my early 20s when I was diagnosed, and the gynecologist that I saw worked in a fertility clinic, which, you know, of course, he was then concerned about fertility. And he said, Okay, dear. Well, when you want to have children, you're going to need some help and patted me on the shoulder, which just sent me into an absolute rage about, you know, what he thought was important in my life. Um, And as somebody who was a young physics student at the time, and very focused on my sort of mental functioning and problem solving ability, and not really about my future plans for children, which I didn't have. I was just like, no, this isn't the problem. (laughs) Exactly.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on to ask your question and talk a little bit about your experience with Picos. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Uh,
1: what I would like to add, maybe, is that um, if you have um, if you're if you're diagnosed with a condition like Picos, to think about how important the things that the doctors are saying to you are side effects. How important are those side effects in your life? And think about. Um, the, sort of the the overall social picture for yourself and and how the treatments make you feel so if being on birth control to help treat something like picos makes you feel fuzzy and not good then then maybe don't do it <laughs> um and try to find other sources of information like this podcast <laughs>
0: <laughs> well thank you so much again for being here elizabeth and thank you for your wisdom and knowledge thank you for having me Back to today's episode, where I answer the question, do men have higher sexual desire than women? Most, if not all, studies done in Canada, the US, and the UK show that men report wanting more sex, having more sex, and thinking more about sex. And that's the end of the podcast, everyone. Thanks for listening. I'm kidding, obviously. Uh, I'm clearly going to dig more into the research to talk about what these numbers mean and what influences them. I also want to put the caveat in here about this research and almost all research on gender differences in psychology. The studies I'm talking about refer to cisgender men and cisgender women. So let's start with the numbers. I'll take a concrete example of just one question. It's a bit hard for me to explain without visuals, but I'll do my best. So imagine you ask 10,000 people, on a scale of 1 to 10, how much have you desired sex with a partner over the last week? And say you get an average of 5 out of 10 for women and 7 out of 10 for men. So on average, men are reporting higher levels of sexual desire for a partner. But there's likely a bell curve distribution of the scores. So a few people, men and women, will say 1 out of 10. Some more will say 2 out of 10, and so on and so on. The majority of men will hover around 7 with lots of scores... 6, seven, eight. And the majority of women will hover around 5, so lots of four, fives, 5s, and 6s. But there will be a lot of overlap. Lots of women will have higher desire than lots of men, and lots will be close to the same. Another concrete way to think about this is to think about gender differences in height. On average, men are taller than women, but there are plenty of women taller than plenty of men. It doesn't mean that all women are taller than all women. When we focus on this idea of men saying they want sex more than women by relying on the average, we erase the wide range of variability that exists for both genders. Another issue with this research on sexual desire is that we're so immersed in so much cultural baggage and stereotypes around sexuality that it's hard to know what's actually the case. Women are so heavily shamed for sexuality in our patriarchal society, the society created around a religion that says women are either virgins or whores, and the messages women and girls get, both subtly and overtly, are that we should not be sexual, or we should only express our sexuality in specific ways defined by men. In addition to not being sexual ourselves, it's our job to also be the gatekeepers for men's sexuality. In heteroland, the story is men demand sex and women have to block them from it. In a culture where sex is framed almost exclusively from a heterosexual male perspective, where there's an orgasm and pleasure gap between men and women... Why do we even wonder why women might be less enthusiastic to have sex that's most likely to be focused on men's pleasure? In a culture where unacceptably high numbers of women, femmes, and non-binary people are sexually assaulted, and then asked, what were you wearing? Why were you alone with him? It's a wonder why anyone wants to have sex with men at all. On the other side, men are stereotyped to be hypersexual. To be a man, gay or straight, is to want sex constantly and with anyone. A, quote, real man would never not want sex. If a man doesn't feel like sex, sometimes the response is to shame him for not being manly enough, especially for straight men. I've heard women question whether a straight man is really straight if he doesn't want to have sex with them. Or women in long-term relationships who feel completely rejected if their partner is not feeling up for sex because there's this stereotype that men should want it all the time. Humans are complex beasts, and being brought up in the soup of all this cultural baggage makes getting at what might be people's true desires, if there even is such a thing, uh, makes it pretty tricky. Some people look to animal research as a way to get beyond the social influences that humans have. Animal research on sexual behavior actually helps give insight to the role that stereotypes play in studying human sexuality. Even when studying animals who aren't themselves affected by human belief systems, the humans observing them are still steeped in their own biases. If we look at research on lab rats, for example, for decades it was assumed that female rats were passive, much like female humans were expected to be passive sexually. When rats mate, the females engage in a reflex posture called lordosis, which is where they arch their backs and present their genitals. It looks like they're kind of paralyzed, so the researchers assumed it meant that male rats were controlling the mating process. It made sense, since we culturally see males as active and females as passive, that it would translate to rats. The research on rat sex used to be done by just dropping a female rat into a male's cage and then watching what happened. This is of course not how things work in the wild. Female rats don't just drop from above. So once researchers designed more realistic structures that allowed female rats to have agency and come and go, they found that in fact, much of the sex was driven by females. Female rats signal their interest in sex by running and hopping and darting around the males, sort of like, hey boy, look at me. Once the male is interested, she allows him to mount her briefly, then runs away. This happens a few times until finally the female allows the male to finish. So there's this clear evidence in female rats of seeking out sex, initiating sex, and controlling sex. Of course, humans aren't rats, but this is just one example where researcher bias got in the way of understanding how sex actually works. With humans, we can't really strip away the social influences, but we can design studies that try to get at human behavior and ask why we might see differences in men's and women's sexuality. There's a classic study in psychology that's often referred to when talking about the differences in desire between men and women. In this set of two studies, conducted in the late 70s, early 80s, researchers Russell Clark and Elaine Hatfield had male and female students go up to people on their campus to test whether men or women were more willing to have sex. In psychology, people who work with researchers to influence study participants are called confederates. So these students were confederates, and they hung out at various locations around campus and approached people of the other sex one at a time. They would say, I have been noticing you around campus. I find you very attractive. Followed by one of three things. Would you go out with me tonight? Would you come to my apartment tonight? Or would you go to bed with me tonight? The results of this study showed a large gender difference, with none of the women agreeing to go to bed with any of the men, (laughs) and around 70% of men agreeing to go to bed with women. For both men and women, the response was around 50% to saying yes to going on a date. Clark and Hatfield suggested these results could be because of traditional gendered perspectives that men want sex and women want love, but also noticed that women were at much higher risk of violence if they went back to a strange man's house. They also note that there's a sexual double standard that could influence people's responses as well. Although the authors themselves were careful to say they didn't know why there was such a difference, many other people since then have taken this study as definitive proof that men are horny lust monsters and women are just less interested in sex. It's also a highly unnatural study. People don't just go around in the middle of the day on a college campus asking other people to have sex with them. Obviously, women are going to assume that someone engaging in this highly inappropriate behavior is clearly a serial killer. In 2013, a researcher by the name of Terry Conley published a series of studies on the potential why of the gender differences in wanting sex with a stranger. In her paper, Conley pointed out a few of the reasons why women might be more reluctant to accept the approach of a random stranger wanting to have sex with them. These included fear of violence and a doubt that the sex would be any good— She also noted that men were all responding to women, and women were all responding to men, so the stimulus itself was different. So we don't know if the lack of interest was because of the gender of the asker or the gender of the askee. Conley had to approach her studies a little differently than Clark and Hatfield, since in this day and age, we can't just unethically approach strangers and ask them to have sex with us for research. This is kind of cruel, especially if the person says yes, and you're like, just kidding, this is a study, I would never have sex with you. Just thinking about it makes me shudder. I hate prank shows and practical jokes, and this just gives me the creeps in the same way. Anyway, so in the new studies, participants just had to read scenarios and respond to them on paper. In addition to having them say how they would respond to the scenario, i.e. if someone approached you on campus and asked you to go to bed with you, the participants also answered questions about the scenario, like how much pleasure do you think you would get in this situation? How much risk is there in this situation? This way we're able to get at a bit more of the why of any gender differences. Comparing men and women in heterosexual scenarios, Conley found that women definitely thought that agreeing to have sex with a stranger was risky and thought they would not get much pleasure, while men felt that the women were low-risk and the experience would be pleasurable. One of the studies included only bisexual women, and they were more likely to accept offers of sex from women than they were for men. Some of the studies also looked at factors that might make men and women more equal in terms of wanting sex. My favorite study of this set was when participants were asked if they would want to have sex with an attractive or unattractive celebrity. For women asked if they would have sex with Johnny Depp if he was interested, the numbers were basically the same as for men who said they would have sex with Angelina Jolie if she was interested. So when the opportunity for sex with a stranger is someone you desire, there's no gender difference. What these studies show is that the context for men and women responding to a random stranger asking them for sex is different. Men assume sex will be good with a random stranger. Women assume it won't be. People having sex with women are also less likely to have to worry about violence. And finally, with a hot celebrity, women are just as likely to want sex as men. So although the question sounds the same, do you want to go to bed with me, it's actually different. Men are essentially being asked, do you want to have awesome sex with an attractive woman? And women are being asked, do you want to have sex that doesn't provide much pleasure and maybe you will get murdered? Conley's studies are a clever way of pointing out these discrepancies. Related to who wants more sex is the question of who has more sex partners. Study after study reports that heterosexual men have more sexual partners than heterosexual women. Mathematically, though, that's actually impossible. In a closed system, where all men's partners are women and all women's partners are men, the averages need to be the same. Sure, a study that didn't include female sex workers could skew the average a bit, but likely not by much. What the research has shown is that because of the stereotypes, men are supposed to have lots of sex and women are not, men and women both interpret and answer the question differently. For example, men might count having oral sex as a sex partner, and women might not when answering a question on how many partners you've had. Also, some research has shown that the more anonymous a survey is, the more close the numbers for men and women actually are. A particularly clever way to study number of sexual partners is to use what's called a bogus pipeline, which is basically like a fake lie detector. Participants are hooked up to electrodes and led to believe that they are either hooked up to a lie detector or not when answering questions about their sexual experiences. When people think that they're hooked up to a fake lie detector, the number of sexual partners reported by men and women actually end up about the same. So this is a good way to get people to be a bit more honest about their numbers. Research also shows that, on average, gay men tend to have the most sexual partners and the most sex, followed by heterosexual people, followed by lesbian women. Again, these are all averages. And these averages are often used as an argument to say, see, if you don't have women as gatekeepers, men, these horny lust monsters, have unlimited sex. Of course, this doesn't take into account all of the previously discussed factors that might influence women and men's sexual behaviors. Also, anyone who's ever been to a queer sex party can tell you that women are definitely into sex. But, perhaps for women in long-term relationships, one component that can dampen their desire is actually a lack of variety. That's the next area of research I want to tap into. So far I've mostly been talking about casual sex or number of partners, but a lot of the talk about differences in desire comes from people in long-term relationships. In many relationships, there is what therapists call a desire discrepancy. This is where one partner desires sex more than another partner. In heterosexual relationships, on average, men are more likely to report desiring sex more than their female partners, but that's definitely not always the case. As I discussed in my last episode, there are a lot of things that can influence desire. Stress at work, relationship tension, having young children paw at you all the time, being exhausted, all of these things can lower desire for sex. But in a long-term relationship, what increases desire? At the first-ever clinical sex conference I went to back in 2004, hypoactive sexual desire disorder, or HSDD, was all the rage. HSDD is a diagnosis for people who have low levels of sexual desire and are distressed about it. Drug companies were really excited about being able to, quote, fix women's low sexual desire in long-term relationships. They wanted to find the magic pill or patch that would solve this problem. One of the things that I remember so clearly from this conference was the pathologizing of women's low desire and saying that it wasn't normal, and then saying that 40-50% to of women have this issue. As a lowly undergraduate, I remember thinking that if half the women are, have this supposed problem, was it actually a problem or was it just the way things were? The next revelation I had, which was actually a light bulb moment for me, was when one of the researchers was presenting her data on some drug for women's low sexual desire and said something to the effect of, well, we know that when women get into a new relationship, their hypoactive sexual desire disorder tends to go away completely, but we can't tell our patients that... I remember thinking, why not? The solution to low desire is non-monogamy. Why wouldn't you tell people that? Years later, clinical psychologist Marianne Brandon wrote a paper that argued just that. If you want to solve women's low desire, then they need to be able to have sex with other people. Or at least think about the possibility of sex with other people. In 2013, journalist Daniel Bergner wrote a book called What Women Want. In the book, he argued that, contrary to popular belief, women were actually the ones who needed more novelty and variety in their sex lives. He argued that, in fact, women were more negatively affected by monogamy. This statement, that women need more variety than men, is part of the reason I actually wanted to do this episode. It's one of those things I have heard and repeated, but haven't actually looked into where the data on that actually came from. I've had Bergner's book since 2013, and I suspected that's where this idea of monogamy being bad for women came from, but I didn't actually read the book until I was working on this episode. In the book, it is clear that there's no direct evidence that women's sexual desire is more negatively affected by monogamy, but there sure is a lot of circumstantial evidence. And anyone who's ever experienced the desire that often comes along with new relationship energy, or NRE, can certainly confirm the shifts in desire that occur with a new partner. Novelty is helpful for decreasing desire for everyone, and if breaking up with your partner to find a new one or engaging in non-monogamy aren't the right choices for you, there are lots of ways to increase novelty within a monogamous relationship. This can include sharing sexual stories or videos, or perhaps making your own sexual stories and videos. Incorporating sexting into your day while you're apart is another option. Also, role play is a great way to increase novelty. If you don't actually want to have sex with a new person, at least you can pretend you are. Of course, for some people, role-play can be embarrassing or feel too vulnerable, and that's understandable. If it's something you're interested in but don't feel comfortable doing, you can take it slowly. Perhaps just pretend you're strangers having sex for the first time. It might seem awkward and you might laugh, but sex should be something that is fun and sometimes funny. Perhaps a massage fantasy, where one partner gives the other a sensual massage but pretends they are a client and a professional. Getting vulnerable in sex can improve the sex and the desire for it, but to be able to do that, people need to feel emotionally safe. If you fear that your partner will mock or shame you, this approach is not going to work. So if on average women need more variety in their relationships to have increased levels of sexual desire, this is one way of going about it. In reflecting on this idea of women needing more variety— I do wonder if the root of it is that men, on average, have higher levels of desire and because of that are able to desire sex in monogamous relationships more. Perhaps, on average, women's desire needs more of a jumpstart. Alternatively, it could just be that the sex that is happening in these relationships isn't really meeting women's needs and so they're less desiring of it because it's not that great. (laughs) All of this is just speculation on my part and tells me that there's a lot more research to do in this area. So do men have higher levels of sexual desire than women? On average, probably yes. But as I hope you understand after this episode, it's hard to know the truth in a patriarchal society that is set up to privilege male sexual needs. Human sexuality is hard to study. We have so much baggage attached to it. We have seen in some research that there are ways to try to eradicate the sex differences by changing the context, and I think in a world where women felt emotionally and physically safe to have sex freely, there likely wouldn't be any differences. Or if anything, women would show higher levels of desire. After all, women don't have orgasmic refractory periods. We can have unlimited orgasms, one after another, all day long, which is likely why women's sex is so heavily regulated in the first place. Our unlimited ability for pleasure is scary to those who want to control us. That's why slut-shaming was invented a couple of millennia ago. It obviously wasn't called that, but it has been there all along. There are some cultures that revere women's unlimited sexual capacity, but most male-dominated cultures really want to shut it down. I'd like to think that one day we'll get to a place where we can recognize that all genders have the capacity to enjoy and desire sex. For now, it's something to think about every time you pick up a book or go see a comedy. You can recognize these stereotypes at work and think about how it influences your sexuality. That's all for this week's episode. If you have any feedback or peer review of this episode, I'm always excited to hear from you. You can send me a voice memo recorded on your phone or just a written email to do we know things at gmail.com. You can find a script for this episode with references and extra info on the website at dowenowthings.com. Thanks to Elizabeth Stregger for chatting with me about Picos on this episode. All music and sounds are by Jeremy Dahl. Check him out at paleblue.ca Script assistance by Matt Tunnicliffe. I'm Lisa Don Hamilton. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at